now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Relationships are hard, and that's why I'm here. Hey friend, it's Cammie Crawford. Think of me as your big sister slash audible BFF that you can always trust to give you the real tea. This is my show, Relationship, the advice podcast that covers all relationship topics. Send your story to hello at relationshippod.com or DM me at relationship on IG and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Listen and follow Relationship with Cammie Crawford on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this program is 70 over 70, but uh, I really wish I were younger. I wish I were 70, but I am ready. I'm 72 years old. I'm 75, miraculously enough. I am 83 years old. I am 88 years old. You know, I'm here at 92. be 94 in May. I'm 101 years old. My name's Evelyn Greasy. I'm 78 years old, and I live in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I've never had a grand plan for my life at all. Mm-mm. But I think I do believe in fate. When I was 28 years old, I went to the doctor. He said, well, you're pregnant. And my first question was, can you give me information on how I can get an abortion? And he in turn said, no, I can't even give you information. I was living in South Dakota where it was obviously illegal to have an abortion. The only place that it was legal was in California and New York, nothing in between. So I remembered that there were women's magazines when I would go to the library. And in the back of the magazines were several pages of small ads And one of them was, if you're pregnant and have questions, call this number. I'm not sure why I remembered that. It just stuck. So I went to the library, found the number, and called. And when the person picked up, they let me know that it was Planned Parenthood. So on Friday, I finished work had my airline ticket in my hand, hadn't been on the airplane before, or certainly hadn't been to New York City. Got there in late Friday evening, had the procedure done, stayed overnight, left the next morning, Monday, I uh, went back to work. And I essentially just went on with my life. It was, it was easy for me until I began to think about it and then realized that it was very important. Went way beyond just this event. It was a process of realizing for me that I owed a debt 
to the women and the people were helping women all along the way, sometimes with great sacrifice to themselves. And in South Dakota right now, for the last 30 years, there's only been one abortion provider in the state. So I founded the South Dakota Access for Every Woman Fund. We accept money from anyone who contributes, and that money is designated to women who call us looking for assistance for an abortion procedure. And I do this because it needs to be done and because somebody helped me. Fate has led me down many paths without me knowing that it was doing that. But I don't consciously think of a legacy or what I'm leaving behind. It's through those people that we've helped. They're the ones that kind of build our legacy. And my tombstone would probably, would be fine for me to just see that it says she lived, she died. Maybe in between, she had a pretty good time. <laughs> but she didn't have a plan. No, she didn't have a plan. That was Evelyn Greasy. And from Pineapple Street Studios, this is 70 Over 70 a show about making the most of the time we have left. I'm Max Linsky. My guest this week is Alice Waters, a chef whose name has become synonymous with an entire philosophy of how to eat and how to live. Waters is the owner of Chez Panisse, the legendary restaurant in Berkeley, California, that helped create the slow food movement. If you've heard the phrase farm to table, that has something to do with Alice and her restaurant. She opened the place 50 years ago this August, and Chez Panisse feels like another kid to her, one she watched grow up and that's now reached middle age. And along the way, Alice has gotten a level of recognition that's rare in American life. She's won multiple James Beard Awards, Barack Obama gave her the National Humanities Medal. She got a Lifetime Achievement Award 20 years ago. And I wanted to know how all that feels to her now. Whether becoming shorthand for an entire movement changes how you understand yourself day to day. And how the woman who opened Chez Panisse half a century ago would make sense of everything that's happened since. Alice Waters is 77 years old. Alice, welcome to the uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I have so many questions for you, but I was wondering if we could start with you telling me a story. And there's a story you've told many, many times about being in Paris and falling in love with food. But there's another story that uh, a friend of yours told me about, about you in Turkey at a gas station. Oh. <laughs> I was wondering if we could start there and, and if you could tell me that story. And I love that story. I was traveling from London 
with a friend of mine. And we decided we'd just take off and drive to Turkey. And we decided to camp on the way. How old were you at the time? Uh, We were 24. Mm -hmm. And we camped in all different places, sometimes campgrounds, sometimes just in a field. But we were in Turkey and pitched our tents in the night, (laughs) just pulled into a, a lot. And in the morning, we woke up and we found a bowl of warm goat's milk put under the flap of the tent. And we were so touched by that and we wanted to know where it came from. And we went to this little nearby gas station and it turned out that this young kid uh, was saying that he it was his field and that he had put the milk onto her flap of the tent. And 11 years old he was, 11 years old. And I've never forgotten how capable he was and how sensitive and how giving. And it really instilled that trust in people that you don't know. And I think about that all the time, that we're afraid to accept things from people, to be connected in a personal way, that we always think they want something from us. And he didn't want anything, anything from me. (laughs) There was no expectation that I was obliged because of their hospitality. It really woke me up in a way that I've never forgotten, ever. Are you able to connect the dots and like give words to how that moment changed your life? It's difficult to say how it changed my life, except for the fact that I have always been seeking out and responding to people who have that about them. Mm-hmm. I know that that is an aspiration of mine. How do you think you're doing with that aspiration? <laughs> well, I love it when I'm at the restaurant and I have that opportunity to just send something over to somebody and not even tell them where it's from, (laughs) surprise them. And I, of course, can't do that now. And it's even hard for me to do it in any social distance way outside at home. And so I'm, I'm very, you know, lonely in that, that place that I can't feed people ideas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have to just talk to them. But I really want to engage them. Well, I'm I'm really hoping that the ability to feed ideas through talking to people is at least um, possible, because that's like the whole premise of this thing that I'm doing. So I hope it works a little bit. (laughs) Just to go back to that moment in Turkey for a second. When I when I heard that story, it brought me back to being 24 myself. And how 
open I was at that time to an experience like that being so eye-opening and so moving. And I'm not sure like I'm, I'm as open to that now as I was then. There's like a, I don't know, like a hardening or like some sort of cynicism. And part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is that when I look at your life, my sense is that you have stayed relentlessly open in the way that you were in that moment. And I wonder if that feels true to you. It does seem really true to me. I learned to trust, probably in the time of the free speech movement in the 60s, where we really wanted to help each other. And I would ride my bike down to the freeway and I'd hitchhike into the city. And I never locked up my bike. And when I got back, there it was. It made me feel so just connected to the community and to Berkeley. That's why I've always wanted to live here. Um, But I think we have been taught to be fearful and to hold on what is to what is ours. Don't let anybody have that, you know. Who knows what they put in that sandwich? If it's not wrapped all up, you never know. It's really something that we need to learn when we're young, when we're children. Right. I'm hoping that we can begin to learn that and find a way to, <laughs> I was going to say to love each other, but it sounded so, so sort of, Pollyanna-ish. <laughs> Is that how you say that? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm asking you some Pollyanna questions, so I I think that counts. <laughs> but one thing one thing I wonder is like, have you had moments over the years in which remaining open yourself, remaining connected to people, loving others, where that was hard? Well, somebody broke into my house once in the middle of the night, and. I was terrified, and I thought that he was probably going to kill me. And I thought I was afraid of dying. And I realized that I wasn't. I just broke through a window and <laughs> jumped out. And I, I didn't know that about myself. And in a way, I was scared about being in a house alone. And I did lock the doors for a while. But being engaged all the time is helping me to live at this moment in time by myself. It sounds to me like part of what you're saying is about being present. I am saying that and our senses, our pathways into our minds, that touching and tasting and smelling and listening and really seeing are so vital to what you're thinking. And I'm really saying it about cooking because this is a moment that we can learn about what is really affordable what is really nutritious, 
how to cook simply, how to engage our children with the whole cooking process. And I feel like we are sensorily deprived as a country and really as a world, many because of hunger and poverty, but all of us by an indoctrination from a fast food culture. And so I am drinking my tea from my bowl. And I look at the different bowls that I'm drinking out of, and they remind me of my friends. Mm. And when I'm cooking, I'm going into my cookbooks that have beautiful pictures of food. And I'm thinking about who wrote that book and what time and what could I cook right now. And it brings back the aromas. I'm always bringing flowers into the house. I'm looking out right now at my redwood tree. Mm -hmm. And that gives me such comfort. So I'm trying my hardest to use all my senses. Is it working? You know, in a way it is, but I have to be very deliberate. Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker a Four Eyes Media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Dana Carvey and David Spade here. You might know our podcast, Fly on the Wall, featuring guests from across the entertainment industry. We decided to do a spinoff called Superfly, and it's fun. It's just two of us riffing on current events, pop culture, catching up, impressions. Joe, Trump's trying to be a dictator. Yeah, she says, uh, you know, bump on the tater tots. Joe, no. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to and follow Superfly on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. I wonder if you can think back to the 24-year-old in Turkey <laughs> and what she would think about capital A, capital W, Alice Waters. <laughs> I think she would think, no, she would have never imagined. She would never imagined my life, except in the way that I wanted to please myself. I never, ever was looking for 
a job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never imagined a career. I never wanted to make money, except that I knew that I had to make some money. But it was never a goal of mine. I never thought about what I was going to do. I just sort of followed my intuition in a way. Was it always that way? Or was there a point, you know, after James Beard says you've got one of the four best restaurants in America, is there a moment where you say like, okay, the, the ground has shifted under me. I, I have more opportunities now. I need to have a plan. Were you thinking that way? Or was it always <laughs> like, I'm just going to do the next thing that, that feels right? It never occurred to me to do anything that didn't feel right for either fame or fortune. I, I guess I, of course, was affected by the fame of being invited someplace or got some award for the restaurant without any question. I mean, it pleased me. And I thought the restaurant was unique in some way. But I thought if if I didn't like doing it anymore, that we would close it. Right. <laughs> and every single year, we have asked ourselves that question at the board of directors. Do we want to do it for another year or not? Have you ever had doubts? We had a big question probably at 20 years. But I've always thought of the restaurant a little bit like a child growing up that it's all very new and exciting from, <laughs> right. from zero to five. And then there's a stable period, you know, it's sort of right. uh, seven to 10 or 12 or 13. And then it's very tumultuous. Then you're 20 and go off to college. Is it having any midlife crisis hitting 50? <laughs> a little midlife crisis at 40. But... This is a time that you have a family, an extended family. You've had the children. And you're really thinking, what is the big picture that we can communicate? And I've probably been working on that big picture for 25 years with the Edible Schoolyard Project. Yeah. And the more that I've been involved with the slow food movement internationally, I'm pretty clear about what needs to be done right now. I'm glad you brought up the Edible Schoolyard because I, I do want to talk to you about the impact that you have had on food and restaurants. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that for me for a second, because I want to know what it has meant to receive the kind of validation that you have gotten over your life? When I received the award from Barack Obama, I think that was the most meaningful award I received because it meant that I had been teaching the values that he admired and that my 
crazy ideas of writing to presidents to, <laughs> to make gardens on the White House lawn was not all in vain. Yeah. That I wasn't just sort of talking out there in the <laughs> world and nobody was listening. But no, it just makes me cry. <laughs> I, what I'm talking about always are kind of these universal values. Yes. I didn't dream them up. I went to France. Right. I learned them. I learned them in a culture uh, that was a slow food culture. Right. I learned how to buy food that was in season. I learned how to eat food that was just picked and what it meant to taste and how to sit at the table. And it enriched my life. I learned that from the French. And I wanted to live like that. I wanted a full cultural experience. And then I realized that I couldn't count on someone giving me that. I had to make it myself. I had to have a restaurant where I could have that food. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like that. So to see other people <laughs> creating their own restaurant. Yeah. And it's totally different than Chez Panisse, but it's based on the same values. It's just a thrill for me. It's like for my child to do something that is giving her life meaning. And that's where the joy is. And it's endless joy when you have that big extended family to realize that your life's work is, is really worthwhile. First of all, it's just a beautiful answer to that question. But there is something in, in what you were saying that I want to ask you about, which is, you know, you feel as though you were taking these ideas and these values from France and trying to apply them in your own life. But here, like, I've known who you are for 25 years. You know, you, capital A, capital W, Alice Waters, <laughs> have come to mean so much in terms of farm to table and how we think about food. You're, you're both like synonymous with and a stand-in for this movement that I could throw a rock from my house and hit 10 restaurants that use that language. And for you, what's the gap between that person, like that person I've known for 25 years and who you are when you're walking around your garden and noticing things blossoming and paying attention to the bowl you're drinking your tea out of? <laughs> Well, I hope there's not a big gap, <laughs> but I'm doing something always that was pleasing myself. <laughs> I'm not doing something that's hard to do. And I think that's the most important thing for this world to understand. Putting a seed in the ground, growing something, Picking it, eating it, gathering at tables and 
playing music for each other and celebrating the harvest. And all of this has been part of civilization since the beginning of time. And we can discover it. It's why I call it a delicious revolution, because you can find food that's ripe in season and affordable. If you know how to cook, it's a great pleasure, a daily pleasure. And people say they don't have time for it, but we need to make time. It sounds so um it sounds so simple when you say it. It is. It is. <laughs> but, I, but I imagine that some people hear what you just said and because of things that feel out of their control, it feels inaccessible. I know it's very, very hard right now. There's no question about it. But I know that some of the most successful projects for the homeless have been garden projects. That's what inspired me to start the Edible Schoolyard was a garden project at the San Francisco County Jail. Yeah. And I saw how people were changed in the process of gardening. And we have to value the farmers again and the teachers as well. Those are two really important people in our world. They feed us. So I'm hoping that we can have a big event in Sacramento in another year (laughs) where we can have a table a mile long and feed the farmers and the teachers. I really like the image of you at a very long table with a great many people. (laughs) Just to go back to that gap for a second between the person I've known for 25 years and the person I've been talking to for the last hour. Are you saying that you feel like there's not much of one that you've been able to... To be myself? (laughs) Yeah, to be yourself and be this person getting medals from presidents for changing the world. Well, I hope I'm kind of the same person. I hope so, that I haven't used those medals except in a way to further these big ideas. And sometimes it's very useful in terms of speaking to the powers that be in Italy or in France, particularly for me. Even in countries like Japan, I feel like I have access to the people who are making the decisions about education, about food. Mm-hmm. And it's built an incredible camaraderie among restaurateurs internationally. And whether it's somebody like Alex Italia in Brazil or Massimo Batura, these people, we have that in common. And when we're thinking about big ideas for change, we consult each other. And it's well-known restaurants in the United States, you know, the big ones in the Bay Area, with like quince, the fancy ones. But it's also the little guys. (laughs) And I love that, that, you know, I'm always talking with 
Gilbert at SUNY and what works for there to go. How does Sylvanet, you know, his little Japanese restaurant? I mean, yeah. he knows a lot more about food to go than I do. But it's that that is way more than the extended family. I mean, it's the real extended family. And I wish that, or I hope that with this administration, that we will be able to be a force for change. Hearing you say that, being able to articulate that so simply and so clearly, it reminds me of something that you've written about, which is the last thing that your mother ever said to you. What she said was, I'm so proud of what you've done. All my life, you've lived the life I've wanted to live. Do you think that clarity, that simplicity of purpose, do do you think that's what she meant? I guess I probably do, because she was wanting, I don't know, to to have some kind of liberation that she only found when she was much, much older (laughs) and when she and my father moved to Berkeley. But I think she would have been a real activist. (laughs) And it made me so happy to know that I was doing that for her. My father tried to find meaningful work always. It was hard for him. He didn't really find it till the end of his life. But that is completely a theme of my life. There's no difference between work and pleasure. Sometimes it's a little hard, but I never separate them. I have the family of Chevenis, <laughs> which is huge and cultivated on purpose. Mm-hmm. I always hired friends because I didn't just want people that could do the job. I really wanted people that I loved to be with and wanted to be with after the work was over. So that is kind of an unusual way of running a business. But I have to say, I've never regretted it. It's rarely failed me. Welcome to spring, the summer rain. Softly turn to... 70 Over 70 is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, and it's produced by Jess Hackle. Our associate producer is Janelle Anderson. Our editors are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Joel Lovell. Research and additional reporting by Charlie Locke. Our mixers are Elliot Adler and Raj Makija. And Jenna Weiss-Berman and I are the executive producers. Our theme song is Like a Dream by Francis and the Lights. And the music you're listening to right now is by Beverly Glenn Copeland, who's 77. Original music by Terrence Bernardo. Additional music by Noble Kids and music licensing by Dan Kanishkui. Our cover art is by Myra Kalman, who's 72. And our episode art is by Lynn Staley, who's 73, and also my mom. 
Special thanks to Lizzie Denahan, Marcy and Bob Hackle, and Samin Nostrat. Thank you, Evelyn Greasy, and thank you, Alice Waters. I'm Max Linsky. Thanks for listening. We are 